Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need, and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul wraps up his letter to Titus with a warning against falling into the traps of foolish arguments. He makes a distinction between pointless arguments and fruitful arguments. When some people ask questions about God, the Bible, or Christianity, they have no intention of getting an answer or even listening to your response or accepting your explanation. Instead, they ask gotcha questions intended to stump you. Questions like, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Uh, the Bible says not to eat shellfish, so why do you order popcorn shrimp? Um, or questions like, who was Cain's wife? Tell me that. Hmm? Well, each of these questions has a reasonable answer. It's not meant for uh, commentary on Titus, though. But my favorite way to respond was given by Pastor Chuck Smith when he was asked about Cain's wife. Who was Cain's wife? And he answered, I'm always suspicious of a man who is interested in another man's wife. <laughs> there are other people who genuinely ask questions and search for answers, and it's important for the church to have these discussions. But often, you'll find that there are many insincere interrogators of the Christian faith, and we need to discern whether or not a conversation is worthwhile. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 tells us, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Unfortunately, you will run into people in the church and in the world who have a tendency to major on minors. They become too concerned with small issues like the days, times uh, that we meet for worship, or kids' church programming, or the management of church property, or whether we should have pews, or whether we should have chairs in the sanctuary. Those sorts of debates, and there's all sorts of others. Of course, some of these issues are important to an extent, and they each deserve our attention and thought. But none of these issues determine the state of someone's soul. In a hostile environment like Crete, the church wouldn't have the luxury of wasting time on little stuff. Today, Christians in places like China or Ukraine 
don't have time for heated debates about the end times or Adam's belly button. Instead, they are so focused on important things like distributing Bibles to places where that's not allowed or getting the gospel out to people or protecting the lives of their congregation. People are being threatened with death and persecution. But in our free society, we have all the time in the day to entertain and allow controversy. If you wanted to, you could start a new denomination over just about anything. Sometimes church splits are warranted, though. But, just as Paul warned Titus, we need to be conscious of and avoid the silly arguments and splits. With enough effort, you could make every disagreement within the body of Christ a salvation issue. You could find a verse to condemn almost any believer. But in the process of compiling that list of verses, you might end up finding one that condemns yourself. You can determine which scriptures you will take to God in order to condemn others, but you cannot determine which scriptures he will remind you of that will convict you. Jesus called out the Pharisees for condemning others when they themselves were severely lacking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Matthew 23, 23. So Paul's letter to Titus forbids sinful controversies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. A dissenter is someone who joins a church, tries to create a following for themselves, and then leaves, taking some of their followers with them. A quarrel about the law is seen today in two ways, I believe. First, some Christians put too great an emphasis on the Hebrew roots of our faith. They insist we follow Jewish law, even though the New Testament explicitly releases it from us. Secondly, uh, many critics of Christianity, coming from the opposite way, uh, will find an obscure or difficult passage in, let's say, Leviticus or Deuteronomy. They'll take it out of context, and then they'll try to pick a fight with us. Or they'll try to pick apart our faith because of some verse that they've plucked out of context in the Old Testament. So we aren't to be engaging in these discussions about, um, and putting too much focus on them, really. I actually think it's okay to discuss with people that Christians aren't bound to the Old Testament law, and also uh, that we are, you know, we should answer these critics when they try to find an obscure, difficult passage. But we as Christians should not be the people who are holding others to the law and causing fights about it, and we should also not be uh, criticizing the Old Testament for something we don't understand, and thus being the people that bring up the quarrels. But it's okay to address questions when they come up. Verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Churches, in trying to be polite, have put up with divisive people far too long. Here, Paul recommends taking two stabs at getting someone back on track before separating from them. 
Contrary to popular belief, it isn't divisive for a church to stand up for the truth. Rather, it's those who contradict the truth that are stirring up trouble. A man named Arius in the 300s began to spread the idea that Jesus was a created being. A few years later, Pelagius claimed that human beings were not born with sinful natures. Before both of those guys, a man named Marcion taught that the God in the New Testament was different from and better than the God in the Old Testament. These are ideas that a Christian church should and could never tolerate. The Bible has too much to say about each of these subjects. Um, and so if we need to disfellowship somebody over these big ideas, that is okay and encouraged. But aside from these essentials, there are some less clear areas of doctrine where Christians may differ from each other without being divided, says John Calvin. In Romans 14, 1-3, Paul says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Some disagreement should be allowed in the church, and for good reason. Each new Christian doesn't automatically understand or know the entire Bible, but the difference between a Christian and an unsaved person is this. Once a Christian has been correctly taught something from the Bible, they will either accept it or ask to learn more so that they can understand. An unsaved person, on the other hand, will always reject what they have been taught from the Bible. What's more, a divisive person, as Paul puts it, the Greek word is hieratikos, and we get our English word heretic from that, these type of people will contradict or twist the Bible in the face of Christian teaching. When such people arise in our fellowships, something called church discipline should come into effect. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-5. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So there you get some of the heart behind church discipline. Not to embarrass or anything like that, but we deliver this person up so that eventually they will be saved. Isn't that something? Anyway, moving on, verses 12 through 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. 
and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This letter is inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it remains very personal. Sure, Paul's conclusion was more useful to Titus than it is to us, um, but all scripture is profitable, and these details help us piece together some events in early church history. Apparently, Titus's pastorate, or his length of time serving in Crete, was coming to an end, and he would soon be sent to serve elsewhere. Paul was headed to a city called Nicopolis. It's in southern Greece, right on the beach of the Adriatic Sea, and it would be a perfect place to spend the winter. Titus was supposed to meet him there. Perhaps this was going to be like a mini pastor's conference, where ministers get a break from training their churches to receive training themselves. At the time these instructions were written, Paul was undecided on who to send as Titus's replacement. We can assume that it was this fellow named Artemis, however, because by the time Paul wrote his last letter, that's 2 Timothy, all the rest of Paul's protégés were serving elsewhere. Listen to this in 2 Timothy 4, 10-12. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. Tychicus I have sent to you, or I have sent to Ephesus. So all those names are accounted for. The one guy that's not accounted for is Artemis. So perhaps he's the guy that goes and replaced Titus. Titus is in Dalmatia, which is in modern-day Croatia. And Tychicus is in modern-day Turkey in a place called Ephesus. Now, Paul doesn't exactly give us a final word on what happened to Zenus, Artemis, or Tychicus. In fact, there is nothing else in the Bible about Artemis or Zenus. And everything we know about Tychicus is found in Acts chapter 20. Um, and he's mentioned in Colossians 4, verse 7, which says, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Now, Apollos is probably the same guy mentioned in Acts 18, 24 through 19, verse 1. We referenced that story earlier when it comes to Christian confrontation and how someone was explained the word more accurately. Um, that was uh, Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos the word more accurately. Together, Tychicus and Apollos delivered this letter to Titus. Um, other than that... There are a few details about this man who are listed at the end of Titus 3. And there's a great lesson for all of us in this. We don't serve God in order to become famous. Think about Paul. He worked some long and extremely difficult days in his life. And how did the world thank him? Not with applause. One day Emperor Nero cut off Paul's head. Soon much of Paul's day-to-day -day work would be forgotten. Thankfully, we don't work with the promise that people will remember us. Instead, we have God's promise 
that he will remember our work and ministry. Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. God's memory is the only one that truly counts. And one day, maybe he'll fill us in on exactly who Artemis and Zenos were. Better yet, maybe we'll be introduced to them in heaven so we can hear the rest of their stories. The final verse of the book of Titus. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul ends this short letter with warm words of fellowship, but he addressed these words to only the true Christians. The stubborn people who harbored negative feelings about Paul didn't receive a blessing from him. Jesus told his disciples, uh, listen to what he says, and Paul is almost echoing it. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 10, 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. If you reject what Jesus' messengers taught, you reject Jesus himself. You reject God. And yet there are plenty of people, uh, churches, and so-called Christian movements today who reject God's message that he delivered through Paul. May that never be the case for you. May you be a person who embraces the God-given doctrines and patterns of behavior revealed through Paul's letter to Titus. Thank you for listening.